I'd like to consider tonight the calling of the disciples, the twelve disciples, as recorded for us in Matthew 3 and 4, and particularly the two words, follow me. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19. But if you go back to Matthew 2, we have the account here of how the Lord Jesus as a child was taken by his mother and father and they came into the land of Israel. But between the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, there is a passage of some 30 years of time and we know very little about the life of the Lord Jesus in those intervening years. We know that as a teenager, he was an individual that grew in wisdom and in stature. If you've ever wondered what that means, it's not a physical reference. It's a reference to the fact that he became increasingly aware of the nature of the human heart, of the great problems of the world, And he grew in understanding of the need of the salvation that he had come to procure. I think it means something like that. We know as well, the only other detail really is that he grew up in Nazareth. And it tells us in Matthew 13 that he became a carpenter like his father. Well, how will he prepare for his ministry? When will it be started? We see in chapter 3, Matthew 3, that John the Baptist is going to reveal his true identity. It's not recorded in Matthew, but in John 1, 29, the famous words, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So the Lord Jesus first is to be baptized. John the Baptist had been baptizing, and Christ strangely, curiously, sees the need for himself to be baptised, not as an evidence of a change that's gone on within him, but in order to identify with human flesh and to show that this was something that he approved of and he was instituting for the church. And so we see the true identity of Christ is revealed at his baptism. And the words come from heaven, the spirit descends as a dove, and those lovely words, this is my beloved son, Matthew 3 and verse 17. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We see the three members of the Trinity there. The spirit of God descends like a dove and lighting, light, lighting upon him. And then the Father from heaven, and then the Son, the three members of one glorious Godhead. But heaven was pleased with Christ. He had already lived a perfect life up until that point, and it would continue. And there was a reference, I'm sure, to the fact that his ministry is just about to begin. So his identity has been revealed by John and it's been revealed by heaven. But something else needs to happen. And we see this at the beginning of chapter four. He's been baptized by John 
John reluctant, but John goes ahead. And then verse 1 of chapter 4, it's the spirit. People often get this wrong. It wasn't Satan that was in control, leading Christ into the desert. No, it's the spirit that led him into the wilderness. This is a Trinitarian decision. The Holy Spirit determines that Christ, his identity is being revealed, but he needs to prove his power. Just think of Adam when he was tempted and he fell, and Eve. Think of the Israelites in the desert and they fell in every which way. But this second Adam, he will not fail. He needs to be tested to the limit, tested in every possible way by Satan. And that's what happens here. He was hungry after 40 days. He was at breaking point, literally. And yet, Satan cannot force him to sin. He withstands. The word of God upholds him. And so, again, he proves his power and his divinity. And so we come to chapter 4. We begin to see here the culmination of this plan. He's waited until exactly the time that was determined in eternity past, as we call it, when the Godhead had said that was the moment that he would launch and he would announce his public ministry. Up until now, it's all been private. He hasn't yet really told many who he is. His parents knew, his family knew, to some extent. John the Baptist knew, of course. But the Lord Jesus is going to launch his ministry shortly. He's had his baptism, he's had the temptations, and he's been prepared for these 30, 30 years by working doing a craft, earning a living, learning a skill, doing what we have to do. And in that very act, he was not absent from the need to work. He's laying down the principle that all people need to work. That's told us in Genesis 2.15. And again, when the Lord's day is enshrined, six days... Thou shalt labour, and then the Lord's day is to be kept. So it's no surprise when we find him labouring himself, because he had to be the pattern. He had to set the example for us. But we come down in chapter 4, and we see that Christ is launching his ministry. John has been put into prison, and then it says, verse 17, here's the key verse, and the one following. From that time, that's the sign, no fanfare of trumpets, but from that time, in the fullness of time, the Lord came as a child, but from that time, Jesus began to preach. Preaching came first, before he calls his disciples. The church will be built on the foundation of his righteousness, which has been proven in the wilderness, and it will be built on the foundation of preaching. 
What kind of preaching? Repentance. He's come to deal with the great sin problem that we all have. This is a world where we can become so entangled. We have to navigate and walk through it with wisdom and carefulness. And so Christ comes and says, repent. Turn from your sins. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The bell has been rung. The launch has commenced. Everything necessary has been fulfilled in his life. His identity, his power has been revealed over Satan. His sinlessness and perfection. And he comes now to preach and to declare that the starting gun, if we can use such a term, has been fired. From now on, it's about the kingdom of heaven. Up until this point, the kingdom hasn't been launched. He hasn't preached. He isn't ready. But when the perfect time comes, he's going to commence the church. And that's what we see in verse 18. On the foundation of preaching and repentance, it says, and Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee. And here he meets two brothers. The first four disciples are two pairs of brothers and two pairs of fishermen. They both had businesses. One was one pair of brothers was working with their father, Zebedee, and the other two, it seems, were working together or with some others. Two pairs of brothers. And the first four are fishermen, not tax collectors. I think that's significant. The first four are fishermen. And it's almost as though in the next verse that we have the first parable that the Lord Jesus ever told. And he saith unto them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Of course, later on, he actually uses these same pictures of the net and the sea and the fish and the fact that the gospel is going to be like a big sweeping net. It will go deep and it will collect the fish in out of the sea. The sea pictured in Isaiah as being the wicked world, the evil waters. And into that sea is cast the gospel net in which it would attract and catch those fish, the souls of men. And so that's what's going on here. The disciples, they hear his call. And it says they left their nets straight away. Chapter, verse 20. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. Well, it begs the question, are we required to give up everything? As soon as we hear the call of the gospel and of Christ, do we give up our jobs as teachers, nurses, whatever our particular occupation is? They did. Should we leave all and follow him? No, it's a parable. It's saying that you need to follow me and we'll explain what this means. The four men, though, evidently do leave their physical activities. 
They leave their income, they leave their family, and they're going to become travellers with the Lord Jesus Christ, alongside him through all his ministry. They left, they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. That's the second pair in verse 22. So the first four, they've heard the call, they obey the call, they leave all and they follow the Lord Jesus. That's not true of all the disciples. It seems that there were those who didn't leave their occupations. In fact, the Lord Jesus, it seems, utilised some of the occupations and the homes of his disciples. He stayed there and their occupations were useful to gain entrance into certain communities that he was travelling in. Zacchaeus, you can read it, Luke 19. You don't need to turn to it. He was a tax collector and there's no evidence that he actually left his occupation working for the Roman Empire. So we see here a mixture. Some leave all physically. Some only leave their ties to the world spiritually. So in a sense, we have a choice. Some go into the ministry, in the gospel. Some are full-time workers. Some have two occupations. They have a secular occupation and they have a spiritual occupation. Some still needed to support their families. Others gave up all and they committed themselves by faith to the gospel and to others to provide for them. So we see here that there is a higher calling. Even those that stayed in their occupation, they were still called to a higher calling. Paul in Colossians 3.24 says, you serve, you work for, you labour for the Lord Christ, he says. But this is more radical than it first appears. This isn't just a parable, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Some of them at least literally did follow the Lord Jesus and they left their ties, their income, their occupation. This is a wholesale change that's undergoing for these first four disciples, three of which are the inner circle for the Lord Jesus. So the Lord Jesus says, follow me. You can translate this slightly differently. Other translations say something like this. They say, come, follow after me. But our translation is good. Follow me. It's a command. It's an instruction. It's two words in our English. It's so clear how often the word of God just uses two words. Fear not. Fear not. Jesus wept. You think of the depth in the meaning of those statements. And this is, a, is no different. Follow me. And... There's a promise here. I will make you fruitful, successful fishers of men. That's what he's saying. There's an old poem. I'm not sure you could call it a hymn. It was written in the third century by one of the early church fathers, Clement. He said, fisher of men, the blessed, 
out of the world's unrest, out of sin's troubled sea, taking us, Lord, to thee, out of the waves of strife, with bait of blissful life, drawing thy nets to shore with choicest fish, good store, follow me. Well, this is a command that the disciples are ill-prepared for. That's what happens when the gospel comes. We're not really planning it necessarily, but we hear the irresistible call of Christ, a call that must surely be obeyed. And when we hear it, we are literally to leave all the ties, all the things that once occupied us, the things which were consuming us. Just turn to the verse in Isaiah 57 and verse 20 to see this illusion that Christ no doubt has in mind. Isaiah 57, 20. We have referred to this recently when dealing with the parable of the dragnet. But he says here, Isaiah 57, 20, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. So Christ here is telling us that the gospel will be about sweeping the world deep and shallow, far and wide, this direction, that direction, sweeping the world which is the wicked sea, pictured in this parable, and out of it the gospel net, Christ's call, will look for souls, souls to be taken out and put on dry land. And so this is a figure that the Lord Jesus uses. But in the remaining time that we have, I just want to apply it in a number of different ways. These two words, I think you can look at it in so many different ways. Follow me. That's our text tonight. The first thing we can say about this, this was a personal call. Each of the disciples, when they heard this call in a human sense not in a spiritual sense or theological sense but in a human sense they had a decision to take do I carry on fishing do I keep my trade do I remain in my home and family or do I respond to what really is an irresistible call a call that cannot be refused because it comes from the master because it comes from the one who we would follow. A call which humbles us, makes us to see our need of him and the desirableness of Christ. And when we hear that personal exclusive call that Christ said to Peter and James and John and Andrew, we must do what they did. Straightway, forsake all. Sure, this applies to salvation, but it applies to life. When we hear the Lord calling to follow him, we must, we must hear, listen and obey. A personal 
and an exclusive call. He's not saying, follow me and. He's saying, follow me. Just me. It's secondly a call that begs, requires, almost it's implicit within it, it must be obeyed. It's a challenge, isn't it? Leave, leave behind, leave what I'm used to, leave what I've made a living out of, leave my friends. It's a challenge, but it must be obeyed. That's the call of the gospel. That's the call of the Christian life, to walk a godly way, a holy path through life with the Lord's help and strength and wisdom. And so it's a call that requires, implies obedience. What a challenge to obey that call every day. Follow me now and always. We can think of it as well as a turning point. What a pivot for these men. One day, all they think about is the plans for the next day, the next trip, the next haul, the next sale at the market now. That's behind them. There's no looking back from now on. The only looking back is to recognise the grace of God in our lives when we first heard his call. There's no looking back like Lot's wife. No, now we hear the call. And we move forward and we follow him as he leads us on. And we can think of this as well as a call to create the church. This really is the call of the first hearers and followers who come into the church. You can think of the church as commencing at Pentecost, but I think we much prefer to think of it as this occasion. This is when his disciples obey he's preached he's repented the kingdom of heaven is at hand now follow me follow me and this church compared to the prototype church of the old testament will only consist of followers not a mixed multitude not those who obey with the hands but not with the heart no, this will be those that obey with the hands and the heart and the feet and they follow the Lord Jesus. It will be made up only of followers. Yes, Judas, I know he's an exception, but it was necessary that scripture must be fulfilled. Christ needed to be betrayed. There was no other way. That was the way determined. But the church, the new Israel, the the church which the Lord Jesus is instituting, it will be a church exclusively as far as we possibly can and in Christ's wider church known only unto him, it will be a redeemed, regenerate church. We try locally where we can, that's why we have a process for membership, that's why we ask people to say, what think ye of Christ? Tell us of how the Lord has dealt with your soul. But as far as the Lord is concerned, this is only followers in his international victorious church. <coughs> and then the command, follow me, is very evidently a command to surrender all. All. 
every tie and entanglement, everything that could snare us and entrap us. Oh yes, this life is complicated. We live in a fallen world and it's not perfect. And we can sometimes be involved in things that it's not our decision. We're not in control of everything in our workplace. We're not in control of everything in the street that we live in. But we have to navigate that with wisdom. But we are to leave everything because nothing compares to him. Follow me. The one who is worthy of our allegiance, our obedience. We are to surrender all to him. No two masters. We only have one now. Yes, we're to work. The pattern of work has been established by Christ. It's a complicated world to live in and to work in. But our allegiance ultimately is to Christ we surrender all willingly as the disciples did in the pattern but then this is a call as well that from now on Christ is to be our supreme pattern our example where he goes metaphorically we go if he goes to speak to those who lived in the streets who had immoral lives If he goes to gather the children, if he goes to difficult places with the gospel, to reach them, if he goes to the poor and the brokenhearted and the maimed, we go. And what he says, we say. We say his word. Chiefly, we don't give our opinions, we give his word. He's now our example. He's our guide. He's our shepherd. We follow him, his pattern, his example through life. Something else here. Follow me. From now on, I am your teacher. You've had many other teachers. You've had teachers within the family circle. You've had teachers within the synagogue. But from now on, I am your supreme teacher. I'm your supreme friend. When all others forsake and fail you, I will never forsake you. I am your master, your new rabbi. I am the one that gives you absolute truth. I'm the one that never changes and I require you to follow me. My pattern, my example, my companionship. My lessons that will be hard to learn, painful to learn. And the way that they are taught to us sometimes may not be the way we would choose them. But the Lord will teach us. He will be our teacher, our master, the one who only can be kind. And we can say that in Christ saying these words to them and to us, because it's a pattern, for us what he's doing is he's saying everything else is relegated in importance this might seem difficult where does the family sit versus christ what did christ say of his own family these are my brethren these are my sisters 
He said, there is a new family that's been formed. It's this family of followers and that family is more important than even your earthly family. Now, I'm not saying we don't have duties and responsibilities to love, to care, to provide. And sometimes that provides a conflict. We have to balance our priorities. But we take Christ's words as he said them. Our new family is the Church of Christ. And we're being taught to relegate, follow me. I am your pattern, your heavenly father is the one that you look to. Then there's a sense that this is saying to us, you're being called to a greater purpose. You've been fishers, fishermen. But now I'm going to make you fishers, fishermen of men. There's something far more significant. What you do gets caught and eaten probably within the day. But what you're going to do with me and me through you sometimes is you're going to do things for eternity. You're going to have an influence, not because of us, of course, but because of Christ and the Spirit. But you're going to have an influence and you may be used in this great eternal plan, the kingdom of heaven, the greater purpose. This is the enterprise that you and I are being called to follow me, stay close, stay right behind me, don't let me out of thy sight. Now that bond, that union, that relationship between Christ and his followers, that's to be more important than any other bond and relationship, husband, wife, child, employer, no, stay close to me. Follow me. You are to seek closer and closer union and a relationship that grows and deepens and trust and faith in me and with me. Stay close. It means as well that we mustn't look to the left or to the right. We mustn't look down, but we follow our leader, so to speak. We follow his footsteps. We follow the speed that he goes. We don't go too fast. He knows how fast we can run or walk more commonly. We follow him and his pace. Sometimes we want to tell the Lord what to do. We say, this is the time. And the Lord clearly says, no, now isn't the time. You wait for my time. It's next year. It may be in 10 years' time. No, we follow him and his pace and his rhythm and his time. Then keep your eyes upon Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We keep eyes fixed. Follow me. Don't take your eyes off me. The disciples did. Simon Peter looked down and he sank and nearly drowned. And how often we do that. And we have to hear those words again. Follow me. Keep your eyes fixed upon me. And this means as well, this is a new way. 
You were walking in the opposite direction. You were going deeper and deeper into the world. You were going away from me. You were enemies of mine. But now follow me. Go in the different direction. Go in the Christ-like direction. Your aim, your purpose from now on will be to grow in Christ-likeness every single day. Follow me. Follow what I do and say and think. And in that way, you will become more like me. You will become more like the Master. And then just a couple more thoughts here. Follow me to the life of faith. This won't be about sight anymore. It won't be about where you think the fish are. It won't be about whether the catch is big enough today and whether we have to go out again tomorrow. It will be a life of obedience to the word of God. And we won't necessarily see the visible fruit straight away. The evidence may not become immediately clear because we're fishing for the kingdom, for eternity. And the way we measure things in human terms, a big catch, a small catch, no catch, is completely different to the way Christ views the church and how he will build it. It won't be about the number of hands up. It won't be about the number of cards signed. It will be about faithfulness, declaring, proclaiming, living, being. And the Lord will determine the fruit. And he will tell us how to live, what to do. We'll live by his promises. Follow me and listen to my promises that I will never leave you three years they've got. Three years following Christ and the opposition will grow and it will become difficult. Sometimes they'll be hungry. Sometimes they'll be so tired they have to keep sleeping. But this is the life of faith that Christ is calling us to and that we're in tonight. But there's one more aspect. They were being called away from the lake. They were being called to a life of set-apartedness, separation, being set apart. That is what a Christian is, somebody that's come out of one kingdom and has been graciously put into another kingdom. And in that kingdom we are to be a holy people, a peculiar people. That doesn't mean what it means today a special people, a people known by their distinctiveness, the way they keep one day special for the Lord, the way they seek to guard their lips, their eyes. They are to be a people set apart because they have a new ruler. The one that rules this kingdom is no longer them. They decided when to go out, where to fish, how long to fish, not now. They have a new master and he will determine what happens in his kingdom. His ways are sovereign. Sometimes he will determine they fish all night. And in the morning he says over there and they have a bigger catch than they can cope with. A life 
set apart. This is the kingdom of Christ. It's been launched. The church, the bell, has been rung. Christ has proved who he is, proved his righteousness, proved that he will conquer Satan as he did in the wilderness, he'll do on the cross. He's proven that the church is to be built upon the foundation of repentance and preaching. And that's never changed. It's the same today. Let's hear those two words once more. Follow me, says Christ. Do we hear that call again and again and again? Will we, despite our weakness and our many failings, will we follow him? And will he turn, as he did the disciples, ordinary, compromised, awkward, uneducated people into extraordinary people of faith. Look at the transformation from the pages of the Gospels to the days that followed after Pentecost, where they went into cities and they were turned upside down and they were bold and they were courageous because they followed him. Let's close tonight 